You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Just said we are going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And believe it or not, we have now officially been in this series for a little over a year now. And uh, today we find ourselves starting a new chapter, chapter 17. And so we have been slowly but surely working our way through this amazing book, this amazing biography of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at a topic or an area um, around forgiveness. Now when it comes to forgiveness, I really think C.S. Lewis was on to something when in Mere Christianity he wrote this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Now, how many of you resonate with something like that? I mean, right, like, we, on the surface, forgiveness sounds good. It seems right. I mean, we certainly expect others to forgive us when we mess up and when we make mistakes. But I think if we're being honest, the reality is, is that when we have been wronged, when we're the ones who have been sinned against, forgiveness starts to not sound as lovely or as easy as we thought. And I think one of the reasons why forgiveness is so hard for us is because there's a sense in which forgiveness is very unnatural. You see, naturally, I think for most of us, our first impulse after being wronged or sinned against is we begin to think, how can I punish this person? How can I make them pay for what they have done to me? You see, there's a sense in which vengeance feels more like the natural response, whereas forgiveness, again, feels unnatural. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus challenges his disciples in this area of forgiveness, and he calls them to a higher standard. And so if you have a pew Bible, go ahead and open up to, or if you have a Bible, if you need to borrow a Bible, you can use a pew Bible, but if, oh, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 17. And if you are using a pew Bible, it's on page 876. And we're just going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read this morning's passage. Again, Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping a sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit into this, uh, into this place. And Lord, we just ask that by uh, your Spirit, Lord, you would give us eyes to see, you would give us ears to hear, 
And you give us hearts to know and to obey you, Lord. And Father, I just want to pray. It seems that um, sickness has been running rampant throughout uh, the country, but also throughout our church, Lord. And so, Father, I just pray if there's uh, ones here struggling or even the ones who aren't here in our body, Lord, we just ask that you would bring healing. Lord, we ask that you'd bring relief from uh, the different illnesses that have been going around. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for a while now, uh, we have been looking through a long stretch of, of teachings from Jesus. And last week, we saw that as he was teaching, he began to address the Pharisees. And specifically, he was dealing with their love of money. And he was talking about the dangers of, of what happens when we ignore the, the word of God, the voice of God. And in this week's passage, we see him turn from addressing the Pharisees to now he is beginning to address his own disciples. Now, when it comes to verses 1 to 10 here in Luke 17, many commentators have suggested that these are three uh, random collections or sayings of Jesus and that they're not really related to one another. But as I've looked at them this week, I just don't think that's the case. Instead, I think that they are related, and I think that all 10 verses form one section of teaching from Jesus, and I'll try to show you why I think that as we walk through them. And so to break this down this morning and to, to, to guide us through this, we're going to look at four movements in the story or four movements in this conversation. First, we'll look at Jesus' warning in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus' challenge in verses 3 and 4. Thirdly, we'll look at the disciples' response in verse 5, and then we'll finish with Jesus' response to the disciples' response in verses 6 to 10. And so starting with uh, the first movement, Jesus' warning, look again at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck than, and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Okay, so we see Jesus here start out with an acknowledgement that sin is real and that temptations are, in fact, inevitable. And so I just love how realistic Jesus is about the type of world and environment you and I find ourselves in. And we saw early on in Luke's gospel that Jesus himself was not immune to temptation. In fact, while on earth, Jesus was very much tempted by the devil himself. And yet, even though he was tempted to sin, he never once gave in to that temptation. Rather, every time he overcame it. And so again here, he's being honest with his disciples. He's saying that temptations are real. They are sure to come. But then he continues on and he warns them. And he says, look, guys, temptations will come. But just make sure you're not the cause or the catalyst of tempting someone to sin. Now we don't know exactly why Jesus is addressing this topic with his disciples in this exact moment. It could be uh, that this is just something he wanted to bring up in terms of uh, discipling them. And therefore it's, it's maybe random. It's unconnected to anything previous to this. Or it could be that he has in mind uh, the Pharisees and his recent interactions with them. And he is wanting now to take this opportunity to warn his disciples to not be like these religious leaders. You see, if we think back to the last several weeks of teachings, one of the things that has become crystal clear is that the Pharisees were often the cause 
or the catalyst for someone else sinning, or as your, some of your translations might say there, they were stumbling blocks. They were, they were causing others to stumble. We saw that with their attitudes and their actions towards uh, the, the group of people that were categorized as sinners and tax collectors uh, in the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. We saw it last week with their relationship to money and their lack of concern for the poor. And so with all of that as kind of a backdrop, Jesus now out of love and concern for his disciples, he warns and he urges them to be different. In fact, if you look at verse 2, he even uses some pretty colorful, uh, perhaps vulgar, uh, a vulgar picture to illustrate this. I mean, Jesus just gets real mafia style here with his disciples and, and he says, look, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, in case you're, you're not sure what a millstone is or in case you can't quite picture it, here is a picture of one. And the millstone is the, the large stone there that the donkey would be hooked up to. And as you might guess, the, the, the large stone, it grinds or it mills things like barley or wheat or something like that. But, but the point here is that it would be extremely heavy. And so here you have Jesus using a very graphic and in one sense a very violent image to describe what would be better to have happen to you than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now I'm going to be honest, I don't know if Jesus is using hyperbole here or if he is being dead serious. But either way, I think the point that he is trying to make is that if we tempt someone to sin or if we cause someone to stumble to the point of unbelief, then we are in some serious trouble. In other words, what I think he has in mind here is someone like the Pharisees. Someone who uses, or uh, I should say abuses, their religious power and authority in a way that causes someone else to lose or to lessen their allegiance to Jesus. And so again, this is a really big deal, and he is issuing a very stern warning but he doesn't stop there. He continues teaching the disciples, and that'll bring us to our second movement in the story, which is Jesus' challenge. Look again at verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, so like I just said, Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples here, but he moves from warning them to challenging them. And what we see him challenging them in is, is to first off, to watch their own lives, to watch themselves when it comes to sin. And he's telling them to be on guard against it. But then secondly, he challenges them to call out and to rebuke sin in uh, each other's lives and then to extend forgiveness. You see, a couple weeks ago, when we were looking at the story of the prodigal son, it would have been tempting to draw the conclusion that perhaps God doesn't care all that much about sin, or that it's really not that big of a deal uh, to him, right? Like, the father just very easily uh, embraced his prodigal son and brought him back into the family. But what we see here in this first part of chapter 17 is that's simply not true. Sin is a really big deal to God. God does care about your sin and my sin. 
That's why he uh, warns his uh, disciples to not be the cause of others falling into it, but it's also why he challenges and commands us to confront and rebuke sin in the lives of fellow Christians, particularly those that we are doing life with deeply. You see, I think the context here is out of relationship. It's not random of, you know, just drive by, you see someone messing up, and you just sort of drive by, shoot them, and, and call them out. I think it's more in the context of doing life with each other and in the context of relationship. Now, I know for some of you, you love this. Like, you just can't wait to rebuke sin in the lives of fellow Christians. Like, you wake up every morning, and you're like, who can I get today? But I, I know for others of us, this is a real challenge. For some of us, we hate confrontation. We avoid confrontational conversations like the plague. I mean, even for some of us, the very thought of having to approach someone and call them out and confront them on their sin, the the thought of doing that causes us to break out in hives. And I think that there are probably multiple reasons for why this is hard for some of us. Perhaps it's as simple as uh, the, we're, we're afraid of the fear of man or the fear of rejection. Or maybe for some of us, we're afraid that if we do this, the person will then turn around and say, oh yeah, well I see some things wrong with you as well, and they'll begin to rebuke us. And so we just think to ourselves, you know what, this isn't worth it. I just want to be left alone, right? Like I just want to live a peaceful life. I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to call someone else's sin out. I've got my own issues, right? And with that, I think some of us avoid this because we misunderstand Jesus' words and the Sermon on the Mount. You see, in Matthew 7, Jesus said this. He said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You see, I think some of us, we read this and we wrongly conclude that Jesus is telling us not to worry about other people, but to just worry about ourselves and to worry about our own sin. But that's not what he is saying. And the reason I know that's not what he is saying is because the very next verse says this, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I mean, look, he's, he's not saying don't rebuke or confront sin in someone else's life. But what he is saying is that make sure when you do it, you're being gracious and loving and humble. I mean, he still very much uh, talks about you being used to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, he doesn't say here, don't worry about your brother's speck. Just focus on your own issues. No, he just says, look, if you do it, when you do it, Be humble and be gracious about it and just make sure you're not a hypocrite. You see, I think for many of us, we have deceived ourselves into believing that we are being loving by ignoring the sin in each other's lives. That somehow we are being loving by ignoring it. But really, in reality, the opposite is true. You see, when someone rebukes uh, someone for their sin in a loving, gracious, humble way, When you and I do that, it's one of the most loving things we can do for each other in a Christian community. I mean, the Bible talks about this idea over and over again. Let me just share a couple examples. Paul in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 18, which is a, a whole chapter that's sort of focused around forgiveness, 
He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 5. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The book of Proverbs addresses this topic uh, multiple times, but let me just share one verse with you. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not rebuke a mocker or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. And so again, I, I know that for some of us, we don't want to do this and it's hard, but this is what Jesus commands us to do. And it's one of the ways that you and I love each other well. I remember a, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, I was a, a part of a leadership training group here at the church. And as part of that training, we went through multiple books. Uh, many of them were on theology. Uh, a lot of them were on leadership. But the book that stands out to me the most, or the one that I remember the most, was a book called Caring Enough to Confront by David Osberger. Now, the reason the book was so memorable was because my uh, really good friend and at the time neighbor, Pastor Nicholas Shivo, who uh, just led us in music here, he was a part of the training group as well. And therefore, him and I were reading the book at the same time. But not only that, as I just said, we were neighbors, and so because of that, we would carpool together to this weekly uh, meeting, this weekly training time. And, and it's kind of a big joke between us now, but while we were going through the book, there were multiple weeks in a row where we would uh, pull back into our apartments uh, later that night, and before I would get out of the car, Nick would turn to me and he would say, hey, um, I need to talk to you about something. And then he would go on to point out all of the ways that I had hurt his feelings or that I had sinned against him either that day or, or, or even that week. And again, I can't remember how many times this kind of thing happened, but in my memory, it was literally like every week for like two months. <laughs> and, uh, and we laugh about it now, and it's kind of a joke, but it was a huge deal at the time in our friendship. You see, as a guy in my early to, to mid-20s, I had a lot of rough edges that needed to be smoothed out. And there had been a lot of years in our friendship where I had intentionally or even unintentionally hurt and sinned against my brother, and yet it went unchecked. And yet because of this book we were going through, Nick uh, both had the language and the tools to be able to confront those things in my life in a, in a loving way. And unfortunately for me, there was a lot to confront. And certainly at the time, it was painful. Uh, certainly, I was tempted to be annoyed at him. But as I look back now, I'm so grateful that Nick loved me enough to point out my sin, that he was willing to have those tough and awkward conversations. Because I'm not sure without them that I would have been able to grow and mature in those areas where I was weak. And I'm thankful that he, uh, even as the title of the book uh, suggests, that he cared enough to confront. And so this is what Jesus is challenging us to do. But it's not the whole thing. He also calls us and challenges us to forgive each other. Again, he says there in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Now, it should be obvious, but just in case it's not, Jesus uh, is not using the number seven as a way to put a cap on the number of times we forgive each other. In other words, it's not like if someone sins against you eight times that you can think, well, I'm off the hook now, right? Like he went too far. She went too far. No, the number seven in the Bible refers, it's a symbolic number, and it refers to completeness or perfection. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that we are to always forgive, that there is no cap, there is no upper limit to forgiveness. In fact, the one time that one of his disciples tried to use the number seven as a cap for forgiveness in Matthew 18, Peter's like, Jesus, so are we supposed to give up to seven times a day? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but rather 77 times. And so again, in terms of forgiving others, Jesus' standard is one of total and complete forgiveness every time. And because of that, the disciples respond in disbelief, which brings us to our third movement, the disciples' response. Look again at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that amazing. Here are 12 guys who have traveled around with Jesus for multiple years. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal the sick and raise the dead. They've seen him cause the blind to see. They have even been sent out on missions uh, by him to do the same stuff. And yet here, here they are. And this is, I think, the only time in the Bible we see them ask uh, Jesus directly. And they're saying, increase our faith. This is the one time Jesus commands them to do something, and they're like, no, that's too hard. Now, what that tells me is that Jesus' ethic of forgiveness was hard for them to accept. And the reason that it was hard is because, as I said at the beginning of the message, forgiveness is unnatural. In fact, I think you could argue that forgiveness is supernatural. And the reason I think it's supernatural is because, like all supernatural actions, it requires faith. And clearly the disciples get that, and they feel like, I don't think I have enough of that. And so they ask the Lord to increase it. Now to finish out this passage, let's move to our last movement in the story, which is Jesus' response to the disciples' response. So they say, increase our faith, and here's how Jesus responds. Verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, so in response to their response, Jesus seems to correct them by saying, look, guys, it's not the, quant- uh, not the quantity of your faith that's the problem, but it's the quality of your faith. You see, guys, you think you need a lot of faith to obey this command to forgive others. But really, the reality is, even if you had a small amount, like a mustard seed size amount of faith, you could do the impossible. You could command a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would have to obey you. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this uh, image of a mulberry tree is that according to commentators, Jesus was referring to a black mulberry tree, which could live up to 600 years. But not only that, they were notoriously known for having a very extensive root system. In fact, one commentator wrote this. He said, uprooting it completely was deemed to be a hopeless task. And so again, what Jesus is doing in responding to the disciples in this way is he is showing them, look guys, 
Your issue is not that you need to have more faith in order to obey uh, to this command to forgive others. Your issue is that you need to have the right kind of faith, namely, the kind of faith that takes me at my word, that trusts me, the kind of faith that depends on me even when it doesn't make sense to you. You see, the reason I think the disciples were struggling and the reason I think uh, to forgive someone requires faith is because when you do it, you are giving up your right to vengeance. You are giving up your right to pay someone back. You even, in a sense, are giving up your right for justice. And instead, what you are doing is you are entrusting your right for justice to God. And in order to be able to do that, you have to have faith. You have to believe and trust that God is good. You have to have faith that he sees the wrong that has been done to you and that ultimately, in the end, he will do what is right in terms of justice. And man, if you have been sinned against in some major crazy way, as I know some of you have, that's really hard to do. It's hard to to say, Lord, I trust this with you. Lord, I give this to you. I release this a person in this circumstance to you. Now, in saying that, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if someone sins against you or even if someone uh, commits a crime against you like abuse or something like that, that forgiveness means we prevent them from suffering the consequences of their actions or that we don't, it's not appropriate to set boundaries in order to keep yourself from being hurt again. That's not at all what I am saying. And I, I don't believe that's what forgiveness means. But what I am saying is that we give up our right to be the one to enact vengeance on them. We give up our right to be paid back, and instead, we entrust ourselves to a good and a just God. Now, if that wasn't enough of a response, Jesus continues on there in verse 7 with a somewhat, I guess you could say, confusing or interesting parable. It says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, as I said earlier, a lot of commentators treat these three sections as unrelated. And I understand why they are tempted to do so, especially since this parable on the surface, I think, feels out of place. But again, I don't think that it is random or unrelated to the previous verses. You see, what I think Jesus is getting at is this. He has just challenged, he has just commanded his disciples to rebuke sin in each other's lives and to extend forgiveness. And yet they respond by essentially saying, no, Lord, that's too hard for us. Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith in order for us to obey you. And then Jesus responds by saying, look, guys, with just a little bit of faith, you could do the impossible. And so from there, he moves on and he tells them a kind of harsh parable in order, I think, to reorient them to reality. In order to remind them of who he is, and to remind them of who they are in relation to him. You see, the bottom line is this. Jesus commanded his disciples, and he commands us to forgive, 
And yet the disciples are acting like this is some impossible task. And, the, you know, they're essentially saying, well, it, it, you know, and Jesus responds by saying, well, it's not impossible. With just a little bit of faith, you can do the impossible. And so this is not impossible. And plus, I've commanded you to do it. And so do it. And by the way, when you do it, when you actually obey me in this, don't act like you deserve to be recognized or applauded for it. You see, there's this tension in the Christian life. And it's really easy to get this tension out of whack. And, and the tension is this. As followers of Jesus, we are loved. We are adopted into God's family. All of our sins have been paid for. We didn't earn that love. We didn't earn that grace. And there's nothing we can do to lose it. It's ours. It's, it's part of our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And so you have that over here. But then there's this other side of the Christian life that holds it in tension. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Ultimately, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, we are bondservants. We are slaves to Jesus. And therefore, obedience to Jesus' commands are non-negotiable. We don't obey them when it's convenient. Or, we, you know, we, we don't only obey them when it's convenient. We don't only obey them when they make sense to us. No, we owe Jesus everything. Not only do we owe him because he is our creator and our sustainer, but more than that, we owe him our obedience because he is our redeemer. You see, in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching there about forgiveness. And in that chapter, he tells uh, the parable that has been called the unforgiving servant. And I'm sure many of you are aware or are familiar with it, but in case you're not, the parable is basically this. There was a king who wanted to settle his debts with his servants. And so he calls uh, this one particular one to, to come forward to, to pay his debt. Well, this one particular servant, his debt was an insane amount of money. Like in today's money, his debt would be something like a billion dollars. And so the servant's debt was literally unpayable. And so because of that, the king orders that the man, his wife, and all of his, his children and all of his possessions be sold in order to make some of the money back. But the servant, when he hears this judgment being rendered, he falls to his knees and he pleads with the king to have mercy on him. And so the king does, and in that moment, the king completely forgives and wipes out all of his debt. Again, he wipes out this insane amount of money. Well, immediately that servant gets up and he goes and finds another fellow servant who owes him a small fraction of money. And he begins to choke that servant out and he demands that he pays him back all of the money. Well, that servant too can't pay the debt. And so he begs him to have mercy on him and the man refuses and he has him thrown in prison. Well, the parable goes on to say that some other servants observe this and they report all of this back to the king. And when the king finds out, he is livid. And this is what it says in Matthew 18, 32. The king says to this uh, servant, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. You see, Jesus' point, I think, in both of these parables, both the one in Matthew 18 and the one in Luke 17, 
is that because Jesus, in going to the cross and dying for us, he paid all of our debt. And because he has paid all of our debt, you and I, we have an obligation. We have a duty to forgive others who have wronged us. You see, if we go back to this parable in Luke 17, one of the things that that we have to remember is that slavery in Jesus' day was nothing like the kind of slavery we had here in America. You see, slavery uh, in Jesus' day, the way that you became a servant or a slave was not through being wrongfully kidnapped and then sold into slavery, but rather it, it, it happened when you racked up a debt that you could not pay back. And your options were you could either go to prison or you could work for the person that you owed the money to until you paid it off. And so actually, if someone lets you work off your debt by by being their servant, they were being gracious to you. They were providing an opportunity for you to be free again. And in the meantime there, they were feeding you, they were providing shelter and all of the rest. And so because of that, the, 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 because that's the situation, when Jesus in this parable in Luke 17, uh, he, what he's doing is he is just simply pointing out the fact that the master of the house doesn't owe this servant some sort of special privilege or recognition or really even a thank you. Because at the end of the day, the servant is only doing what is their duty. And I know that for some of us that might sound harsh or that might sound unloving, but it's really not. I mean, you and I, we really do owe Jesus everything. We owe him our lives, and we certainly owe him our obedience. And yet, one of the things that is so amazing about Jesus, the thing that makes him so worthy of our love and our affection is this. Yes, you and I owe him. We really are, at the end of the day, unworthy servants. When we obey him, we really are doing our proper duty. And so, no, he doesn't owe us a thank you. He doesn't owe us some special recognition or applause. Yet, because of who he is, he gives it to us anyway. You see, we already covered this passage, but in Luke uh, chapter 12, there's this amazing scene in one of Jesus' parables. And the context of the parable is uh, Jesus is talking about his return. And, and, And so here's what the parable says. Luke 12, 35, if you want to look at it. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that you may open the door to him and at once when he knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Did you catch that? Did you catch what that parable was saying? It says that when the master finds his servants being obedient and faithful, he dresses himself for service and he invites them to the table and he serves them. And certainly we see Jesus illustrate this at the Last Supper, right? Like at the Last Supper, Jesus strips himself of his outer garments And he gets down on his knees and he washes those disciples' dirty, mangy feet. He takes the place of a servant. And he honors those men by doing that. And so again, there's a tension here. We are unworthy servants who are just simply doing our duty. And yet, we are also deeply loved sons and daughters who are invited to the table. 
We are the ones who have been promised that, that if we finish well, one day we will stand before the Father and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so as we close here, I just want to uh, finish by thinking some more about this idea of forgiveness. You see, there's a sense in which forgiveness seems really black and white. I mean, Jesus commands us to do it, and so we just need to do it, right? But there's another sense in which forgiveness is deeply complex. And at times, it feels more gray than black and white. You see, the problem with talking about forgiveness on a really broad scale is that there are a range of things that could be coming into your mind, right? Like the range is huge. You could be thinking about that guy who cut you off in traffic this morning and your need to forgive them. Or you could be thinking about the person who sexually abused you or the, the dad who walked out on your family. Again, the, the range is, is massive that we could be talking about. And so I just want to acknowledge that. I want to be honest with the difficulty and the complexity of this topic. And yet I also want to challenge you to obey Jesus in this. I mean, he does very explicitly command us to forgive without reservation. And he doesn't do it as someone who cannot relate or as someone who made himself immune to being hurt by others. No, in a moment, we're going to come to this table we call communion and we're going to remember and we're going to celebrate just exactly how much it cost Jesus and how much it pained him in order to forgive us. And so, no, he is not saying, he's not commanding this as someone who is immune from the pain and the cost of forgiveness. And so keep that in mind, but not only that, I think we also have to trust him in this, right? Like we have to trust that in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is looking out for our best interest. You see, for a long period of my life, I believed God's commands were there just to control us or to keep us from enjoying life. You know, like he was some sort of cosmic killjoy that was on a power trip just trying to, you know, you need to obey me, don't worry about why, you just need to do it, right? Right? But I, I don't believe that anymore. I am now convinced that God's commands are actually there for our protection and they are there for our joy. And I think that that's true of this command to forgive. You see, unforgiveness leads to bitterness, which leads to a life of misery. Whereas forgiveness leads to freedom, which leads to joy. You see, someone has once said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die, right? Like, unforgiveness is dumb. It's stupid because in the end, you are hurting yourself. A Christian author and uh, Lewis Smead said something similar, but he stated it a little more positively. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. You see, forgiveness is not easy. And the process is often painful because it oftentimes means you having to revisit painful memories from the past. But what I'm trying to, to urge you in this morning is that it's worth it. It's worth it because Jesus commands it and obeying him is always worth it. But it's also worth it because it leads to joy and to freedom. And so to close here, I want to show you a video which... Uh, features a testimony from uh, a woman named Corey Tim Boom. 
and it deals with her own journey of forgiveness. Now, for those of you who have never heard of Corey, she and her family were Dutch Christians uh, who hid and rescued Jews from the Nazis during World War II in the Netherlands. Um, Unfortunately, though, in the end, they were caught and they were sent to a concentration camp where both her dad and her sister, Betsy, uh, died. And after the war, Corey became a well-known and a well-loved Christian author and speaker. And in this video, you'll hear her talk about, her again, her journey with forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we know that you've commanded us to do this. Father, I know that there are people in this room right now who are wrestling. Lord, I know that there are people in this room right now who have been sinned against and wronged in some horrible, unimaginable ways. 
in ways that like, like what Corey experienced, Lord. And yet, Father, I do agree with her. I believe that you, through the power of the Spirit, as we remember, as we reflect on the fact that we, uh, like the unworthy servant, have been forgiven all of our debt. Lord Jesus, you absorbed our debt in your body on the tree. Lord, as we remember that, as we reflect on that, Lord, I believe you give us the power through the Spirit to then turn to those who have wronged us, Lord, to those who have sinned against us, and you will give us the power to forgive from the heart. And so, Father, I just want to pray, if, Lord, if there's anyone in here right now who is, is really struggling, who's fearful, Lord, even the thought of having to forgive their enemy is, is terrifying to them. Lord, I pray that as Romans 5, 5, you would pour out your love into their hearts. Lord, I just pray you'd give them the faith, the courage to do this. And Lord, for all of us, just as a community, God, can we, can you just continue to make us, Lord, I I see ways that you've done this, but will you continue to make us a a kind of place where, where we are quick to forgive each other? Lord, where we're quick to, to, uh, that we're even willing to call out sin in each other's lives and then extend forgiveness when we need to. Lord, would you protect our unity? Would you help us be a church that is, uh, that is full of peace? I ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.